Brothers and sisters, tonight we'll be hearing God speak to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 to 20. That's on page 1640 in the Pew Bibles. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The word of the Lord. Hello, nice to see you again. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been making our way through a series called Meet Jesus. We've started the year by seeing what the Bible has to say about who Jesus is as King, as Saviour, and then tonight we're doing something a little bit different. So our normal habit here at Ann Street is to make our way through a passage of the Bible, normally by making our way through a book of the Bible. Tonight, we are a little bit of a different gear. We are looking at some historical evidence tonight and thinking about what that means for us. So let me pray and we will get into it. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that the things you say to us are not only good and beautiful, but they are also true. Father, we pray that tonight you would help us to seek the truth, and we pray that by your goodness we might find it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was growing up, I loved reading about mythology, Greek gods, Egyptian gods, Norse gods. I found that stuff fascinating. Uh, I grew up at a different time in history, though. There was once, uh, at various points in history, people who believed these stories to be true. But I grew up in a time in history where we know that these stories were not true, they were made up. But when you read the Bible, you read stories about giants and 
worldwide floods and one man beating a whole army. And then you come to a particular part of the Bible where there's a particular man who turns water into wine and heals sicknesses, calms storms, walks on water, a man who rises from the dead. How is that different to those mythological stories? How do we know that this stuff about Jesus is real but the other stuff isn't? Well, of course, there are lots of voices who would say, well, we don't, we don't know that this is different. There are plenty of people in our world today who believe that Jesus never existed historically as a person. There are other people who believe that Jesus existed, but he didn't do or say the things that the Bible says he did and said. And so if someone is going to say that Jesus, particularly the Jesus of the Bible, is real, they're going to need some good evidence especially when the stakes are as high as Jesus claims them to be. Like we said over the last couple of weeks, we've been having a look at what the Bible says about who Jesus is. Two weeks ago, we saw that Jesus claims to be king. King over nature, king over morality, king over you and me, king of everything. And last week, we saw how Jesus also says that he is saviour the only one who can save us from judgment and reconcile us to God. These claims are massive if true. If Jesus is real, if he really is all that he says he is, that changes everything. So is he? Is he real? Is he really what he says he is in the Bible? Is he really king of the universe and the only saviour of humanity? Now, you might be here tonight as a sceptic. You are not convinced of any of these things. You might be here as someone who believes in Jesus, but you have some lingering doubts about, well, how how can I be sure that these things really happened? You might be someone who's believed in Jesus for a long time, but you've, you've never really wondered, well, what evidence is there for Jesus being real? Wherever you're at, we need to look at the evidence. And there are a few different kinds of evidence. In fact, I'm only going to scratch the surface of the information, the data that is out there tonight. But the kinds of evidence that we're going to look at tonight build on each other, like, like steps in a staircase. There are four steps that we will climb together tonight. And so let's have a look at the first step. We've got to ask the question... Is Jesus' existence even reliable? Some people might say that the only evidence that Jesus ever even existed in history is in the Bible. But actually, there is lots of evidence outside the Bible from non-Christian sources which indicates that Jesus really existed. Let's look at a few examples. Tacitus, probably the leading historian of the Roman period in 64 AD, he wrote about a man named Christus who died during the reign of the Emperor Tiberius under the governor Pontius Pilate. There's a Jewish historian named Josephus. He writes in 93 AD, he wrote about Jesus, a person who did miracles, who died and who had this bunch of people called Christians who continued to believe in him after his death because they were convinced that he came back to life. A little bit later on, Pliny, who was a Roman governor and no friend of Christians in AD 112, he wrote about the weekly worship habits of these followers of Jesus, people who, even after 100 years, 
were still convinced that Jesus was alive. Now, there are lots of other sources from ancient times, Suetonius, Lucian, Thallus, the the Jewish Talmud, but when you put all of these sources together, what do they say? What picture do they paint for us? Altogether, these non-Christian sources tell us when Jesus lived, where he lived, that he was Jewish, that he was a rabbi, that he attracted large crowds, that he performed feats that people thought were supernatural, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, that people claimed he rose from the dead, and that he was known as Christ or Messiah. These are the very things that the Bible claims Jesus said about himself. So how reliable is it that Jesus existed and said these things? Well, according to the non-Christian sources, pretty reliable. This evidence is pretty good. To sum all of that up, there's a historian named Robert Van Voorst. He wrote a book called Jesus Outside the New Testament. He says that among New Testament scholars and historians, the theory of the non-existence of Jesus remains effectively dead. He's saying that no serious historian doubts the historical existence of Jesus. So that's our first step. Did Jesus exist? Well, it seems that there's a lot of agreement that he did. Let's take the next step, though. The next step is to ask the question, well, were the people who wrote about Jesus in the Bible, were they reliable? Some people might say, well, sure, maybe Jesus existed, but the people who wrote about him in the Bible, they got all kinds of things wrong. They made things up. They they supported a story they wanted to be true. But actually, there, again, is lots of evidence to support the historical reliability of the people who wrote about Jesus in the New Testament and the accuracy of the things they wrote about him. Now, if you want to get an idea as to how well a historian, an author, knows the historical figure they're writing about, you need to look at a couple of things. You need to look at the the distance in time between when that figure died and when that historian starts writing. The other thing you look at is... uh, Well, that's the main thing you look at. We'll come to the other thing later on. Um, Let's have a look at a few big examples in history. So uh, here's lots of time, and uh, up here, that's us. We're here in 2024. Let's look at, at a few significant historical figures and how far removed their their historians were from their actual lives. So we have Muhammad, the prophet of Islam. Uh, There are 130 years between his death and the first writings about him. That's a, that's a long period of time, but in history, that's reasonable. Now, another example, the Roman Emperor Tiberius. There are 77 years between the death of Tiberius and the first writings about him. Again, that's reasonable. We have a lot of examples like that in history, and we take the writings about Tiberius to be accurate. Let's look at Jesus. Between Jesus' death and the first writings about him, there are only 20 years. The people who were writing about Jesus, the people who were interviewing witnesses and writing about Jesus, they were there. They were alive when Jesus walked the earth. The people who wrote about him, the people who were interviewed about him, they heard his voice. They remembered the things that he said. They remembered 
the moments they had with him and the ways that he changed their lives, they touched him. Once again, just to put this in perspective, another significant historical figure, the man we know as the Buddha, there's 450 years between his death and the first writings that we have about him. Compared to the other significant, credible historical figures, the people who wrote about Jesus in the Bible were far closer to Jesus' life and death. They were there. They were eyewitnesses. The writers of the Gospels, because they were there during Jesus' time, they knew the world that Jesus lived in. They knew the details of the the world at the time, and they knew it in such a way that if they were making this up centuries later, there's no way they could get these kinds of details right. Let me give you a few examples of that. When we look at the names that are used in the New Testament, they tell us how seriously the New Testament writers knew the period they were writing about. The most popular names in the Gospels also happen to be the most popular names used when and where Jesus lived. So let's have a look at a little table here. Here's a list of the most, the top 10 male names used by Palestinian Jews in the centuries just before and after Jesus. Look at Simon. It's the most popular name. But the historical records that we have show that we know of at least 243 Simons living around Jesus during this era. And that, we add that, those things up from writers like Josephus, uh, from burial vessels called ossuaries, from the Dead Sea Scrolls, places like that. So there's 243. It's the most popular name of the time. Also, the most popular name in the New Testament is Simon. That might be a coincidence, but if we look a little bit deeper... This is information from Richard Borkham, who's a New Testament scholar. He goes into a little bit more detail. He shows the proportionate use of these most popular names in in Israel, but also in the Bible, in the New Testament. From the historical records we have, it's estimated that the two most popular names during Jesus' day, Simon and Joseph, made up about 15% of all the men in Israelite society at the time. That's what we know now. But in the Gospels and in the Acts of the Apostles, where we find most of the Jewish names in the New Testament, it's almost the same. 18% of men in the Gospels and Acts are named Simon or Joseph. Likewise, that the top 10 names accounted for 41% or so of Jewish society, and in the Gospels and in Acts, it's 40%. Now, that might, that might just sound like spreadsheet soup to you, but essentially, this is big for historians. Not only did the authors who wrote about Jesus know what the most popular names were when Jesus was alive, they used them in the same proportions as people use them in that moment in history. For historians, this is an indication that the gospel writers, they knew the details of the world at the time that Jesus lived in a way that could not be guessed Now, either they had access to 21st century archaeology and documentary research methods, or they were there. They knew these people. They were these people. The same is true when we look at how Jesus' biographers, the Gospel writers, wrote about places, geography. There are lots and lots of towns 
and place names and mountains and all kinds of things in the Gospels. In fact, the, the authors of the four biblical Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, they each list between 50 and 100 locations in their Gospels. Now, when we compare that to some other documents, we see why that's a big deal. There are some other documents which are known as the non-canonical Gospels. So they're, um, they're documents that emerged about one to 200 years after Jesus' death. And many of them make claims about Jesus that contradict the four Gospels that are in the Bible. Now, you, examples are like the Gospel of Philip. Jesus had a, according to the Gospel of Philip, Jesus had a sexual relationship with Mary Magdalene on the side. So the Gospel of Judas talks about how Jesus actually secretly instructed Judas to hand him over to the Roman authorities so that he would be killed. And in doing so, that Jesus had a, a kind of a secret side thing with Judas where Jesus told Judas a secret message, a secret gospel that he never shared with his other disciples. Now, some people claim that these documents, that the, the, the small voices that have been suppressed by by the church over the years to hide these inconvenient truths. The reality is they, they just seem to be bad history. Compared to the four Gospels that are in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, these other documents make almost no mention of places or locations. Compared to the four Gospels in the Bible, these later documents make no attempt to substantiate the historical accuracy of their accounts. The early church, before it was an institution, and modern historians alike agree that the four Gospels that are in the New Testament read like actual good history. Now, one interesting example of this is the town of Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. For a long time, it was believed that Nazareth didn't actually exist during Jesus' lifetime, during that early Roman period. There, there was no mention of Nazareth outside the Bible until about 200 AD. And so that was taken by some people as evidence that, ah, the Bible is making things up. This town never existed at the time the Bible claims that it did. Except that in 2009, an archaeologist named Yardina Alexander and her team found it. They found Nazareth. They unearthed a house in that area that dates to the time of Jesus. And there have been other teams that have located lists of families and households that lived in Nazareth during that time. We're looking at this because it makes it clear that the writers of the New Testament were not trying to invent a story. In fact, they were at great pains to demonstrate to their readers that what they were writing was real history. If we look at 1 Corinthians 15, a little bit that we read before, Paul says that Jesus appeared after his resurrection to 500 people in, in the few weeks between coming back to life and going back to heaven. Paul says that most of those people are still alive today. Now, obviously, they're not alive today in 2024, very strange. But Paul was impressing on his readers 2,000 years ago that he was not inventing a story. They could go and speak to these people who claimed to have seen Jesus back from the dead and it's not like there was just one or two of them. 500. Go and speak to them. The biographies of Jesus in the New Testament 
are full of these historical details, these consistencies, these fact checks, predictions from the Old Testament that came true in the words and deeds of Jesus and in the things that others did and said to him. Now, when you hear that, how all these things line up so well, you probably a few of us are thinking, well, surely that's a little bit convenient, isn't it? Surely something like that must have been the product of a few people working together to make sure that all these Bible stories line up. Except that that's not how the Bible works. The Bible is 66 books written by 35 different authors over 2,000 years. These people couldn't plausibly have coordinated their story unless that's actually just what happened. The people who wrote about Jesus, by any historical measure that we have today to assess eyewitness testimony, they were reliable. They wrote good history. That's a big step that we've taken to say that the people who wrote about Jesus were reliable. But there's another important step that we need to take. Well, what if, what if that information wasn't passed on accurately? You know, sure, maybe the original Bible, when it was written, might have been true, but what we have now, hasn't this been changed over the years? You know, just through the, the process of people kind of copying it down wrong or making spelling mistakes or you know, forgetting to add in a word here or dropping out a line there or maybe even deliberately changing it to make it line up with their beliefs a little bit better. How reliably has the Bible been passed down to us? Well, it's true, we don't have the original documents of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. We have copies, we have manuscripts. But actually, what we have today in our modern-day Bible is a reliable copy of what they originally wrote. All of the ancient documents that we have today are copies. They didn't have photocopiers or e-books when they wore togas. These things had to be copied out by hand. And so, what makes a copy of one of these ancient documents reliable is, well, there's two things. It's how close that copy was made to when the original was written. And the other thing is how many of these copies we have. Because if we've got lots of copies, we can check them against each other and see, well, what, what does this thing really say? We can root out some of the inconsistencies. When we look at the important ancient historians from the centuries around Jesus' time, the writers upon whom we base our knowledge of ancient Greece and ancient Rome, we don't have any of their original writings. We have very few copies, and the copies that we have were made centuries after those originals were written. Take Herodotus, for example, he's the leading historian of the Greek period. There's 1,300 years between the original histories that he wrote and the first copies that we have, and we only have eight copies of his writing. Tacitus, we met him before, he's the leading historian in Roman times. There's 1,000 years between when he was writing and the oldest copy that we have, and we have 20 of those copies. What we have from Herodotus and Tacitus's writings is considered today to be a reliable record of what they wrote at the time. And you can go down to Dimmicks, it's probably still open tonight, you can buy a copy and read it for yourself and you will be reading essentially what they wrote. But compared to other ancient documents, the oldest copies we have of parts of the New Testament are from 150 down to even 80 years 
only 80 years after the originals were written. And we have five and a half thousand of them. And that's just the ones that were written in Greek. We've got 22,000 all up. Compared to Herodotus and Tacitus, how confident do you think we can be that we have a reliable record of what these people originally wrote about Jesus? Now, we need to understand that we don't just have a whole bunch of 1,900-year-old full New Testaments sitting around in caves that we've found. The copies that we have, are, well, they're fragments, they're pages, they're books that have been compared and compiled into a Greek New Testament, and that's then been translated for us into our languages. Now, you might think that surely some of those copies fragments, manuscripts, surely there must have been discrepancies and spelling errors. How can we really know that we've got the right thing? When you'd be right, those differences are called variants and there's actually quite a lot of them. But out of 20,000 of these different variants, there are only 40 that vary in any significant way, like beyond a spelling error. And none of them affect the central core of the things that Christians believe about Jesus. Don Carson is a New Testament professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and this is how he sums up the situation. He says, the purity of the text, so what we have in the Bible, is of such a substantial nature that nothing we believe to be true about Jesus and nothing we are commanded to do is in any way jeopardised by the variance. He's saying that what we have in the Bible about Jesus here is not different to what Jesus said. It is what Jesus said. It's been passed down to us, preserved and kept for us. This is it. That is a significant step to take as well. But there's one more step that we need to take as we think this question through, and it's to do with Jesus' resurrection. So far, we've We've said that there's a lot of evidence to back up the reliability of the writings about Jesus as historical documents. But isn't it possible that even a document that is largely non-fiction and historically accurate can still contain some things that aren't true? I think it's probably the case with nearly every non-fiction book that I've read. Isn't it possible that there are things in the story of Jesus that have been inserted or misinterpreted or misreported Particularly, what about those things that seem to defy physics and biology? What about the miracles? What about the most central claim in the New Testament that Jesus rose from the dead? Isn't it possible that even in a book that is largely historically accurate, that that could still be untrue? Is it possible that someone might have just made that up? Is it possible that there might have been some kind of conspiracy to propagate that story? Is it possible that people could have gotten together to steal Jesus' body and make it look like he'd come back to life? Well, I think there's a couple of different kinds of evidence for us. First of all, there's evidence in the Bible and there's evidence outside the Bible. The evidence in the Bible, I think, is quite simple, but it's actually quite useful. Back in 1 Corinthians 15, oh, we've gone too far. Back in 1 Corinthians 15, we read that Jesus appeared to 500 people after his resurrection. That is a lot of people to keep a secret of that 
magnitude. You would need people on the inside, people on the inside of the Roman government, people on the inside of the Roman military, people on the inside of the Jewish religious establishment that had Jesus killed in the first place. You would need all of those people working together to propagate a conspiracy like this. How do you keep all of that secret? How do you keep 500 of those people silent? That is not very plausible. There's evidence outside the Bible as well that the historical record is that the people who called themselves Christians in these days, the people who claimed that they saw Jesus raised from the dead, those hundreds and eventually thousands of people who spread across the Roman world, they were completely, inalterably and conspicuously transformed by the belief that Jesus was alive. They wouldn't have done this. In fact, I don't think they could have done this, motivated by a lie. You may have heard some of the stories of the Christians who were martyred in the first and second centuries. Most of Jesus' close apostles, the leading witnesses to Jesus' resurrection, were killed for the message that they spread. And by the end of the first 300 years after Jesus uh, had come back to life, there are over 100,000 people who were killed for their faith. That is a lot of people to die for something if they knew that it was not true. The Emperor Julian, who ruled the Roman Empire close to its demise, he hated the Christian sect and its presence in his society, and yet he wrote this, "'It is disgraceful when no Jew ever has to beg "'and the impious Galileans,' that is, Christians, support not only their own poor, but ours as well, all men see our people lack aid from us. In other words, Julian can't help but notice the fact that these Christians have been so utterly transformed by their belief in Jesus that they are caring for the poor of the Roman Empire in a way that is bringing shame upon the emperor himself. Such was the transformation of the message of Jesus who would come back to life on the people who put their trust in that message. And if Jesus really did come back from the dead, that changes everything. One of the people to witness Jesus' resurrection and then to talk about it is the Apostle Peter. And he says this in Acts chapter 10 from verse 39. He says, we are witnesses of everything he, Jesus, did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Peter says, Jesus is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. If Jesus really is alive, that means that one day we are all going to meet him and he is the one who gets to judge the living and the dead. He is the one who has the right to say how we have lived our lives. 
He is the one who has the right to say who gets to be with him for eternity and who is sent away from him for eternity in hell. He is the judge. And so if that is true, and one day you will meet him, then it makes sense that we have an answer for when he asks you, why should I let you in to be with me? What are you going to say? I was a good person, better than him at least. I went to church. I had a Christian family. None of those answers are what satisfies the judge. Peter says what the answer is that qualifies you to be with Jesus for eternity. And it's at the end of that passage that we read. Peter says, everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Because I believe that Jesus died to take my sins away. And I have nothing to offer apart from what Jesus did for me. So what do you think? Is Jesus real? Well, there's a lot of evidence that seems from a historical perspective to be pretty reliable. Jesus' existence is reliable. The non-Christian sources give us that. The people who wrote about Jesus were reliable historians. The information was passed on reliably through history and it seems like the resurrection of Jesus is pretty historically reliable. And if Jesus really did come back from the dead, that changes everything. There are a lot of things that people believe and claim to be true in this world. People will try and convince you of those things and it's up to you to determine whether those things are true or not and you need to know how you are going to figure that out. Christians need a good reason to believe what Jesus says about himself, whether he's really king, whether he's really saviour. But let me ask you this question. Do you have a good reason, a good enough reason, to believe that he's not? Let's pray as we finish up. Our Father, we thank you that you call us to seek the truth and that you have offered us reason to believe that the truth is found in Jesus. Father, we pray that we would be truth seekers, that we would weigh evidence well. And Father, we pray that you might help us to see the historical, reliable, true things that Jesus says about himself so that we might know him and trust him and be reconciled to you through him. Amen.